Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast. Relevant and engaging content designed to help you dominate the day. For all those board-eligible listeners out there, the next General Surgery Oral Board Exam is coming up, and it's coming up quick in November. Now is the time to develop your study strategy. Let Behind the Knife help you out with our Oral Board Audio Review. Our review contains 92 scenarios covering 115 score core topics. The entire project contains more than 25 hours of content. Now, each scenario includes two parts. The first part is a perfectly executed oral board scenario that mimics the real thing. Scenarios are five to seven minutes long and include a variety of tactics and styles. Now, if you're able to achieve this level of performance in your preparation, you are sure to pass the oral boards with flying colors. The second part includes high yield commentary that's added to each scenario. And this commentary includes tips and tricks to help you dominate the most challenging scenarios in addition to practical, easy-to-understand teaching that covers the most confusing topics we face as general surgeons. We're proud to say we have received rave reviews and are happy to offer the audio review at a fraction of the price when you compare to Osler or Pass Machine. In fact, we designed the oral board review to replace these courses. Learn more by visiting BehindTheKnife.org and clicking on the Premium tab. Hello and welcome back to Behind the Knife. I'm Matt Chia, one of your surgical education team members, and I'm entering my final year of vascular surgery residency at Northwestern. We've got an exciting episode today, and so I'd like to introduce some of the voices here with me. First off, I'm joined by two of my mentors, Drs. Yerong Hu and Carl Billamoria, the co-PIs of the second trial. Yerong is a pediatric surgeon at the Lurie Children's Hospital in Chicago, as well as being one of the associate program directors for the general surgery residency here. Carl is a surgical oncologist, founder of the Surgical Outcomes and Quality Improvement Center, and had recently been selected to become the next chair of surgery at the Indiana University School of Medicine. Carl, big congratulations on the next chapter of your career. Thanks, Matt. Really thrilled to be joining the team at Indiana University and moving our research program in the second trial there. Of course, very sad to leave Northwestern after almost 20 years here. Well, fortunately, it's not too far of a distance to go between Chicago and Indianapolis. Before we introduce our guests, who are actually coming from Indiana University for today's episode, I wanted to briefly touch on your career interest in surgical education research and how that fits with this transition for you. It's been particularly encouraging for me to see how education research has been a real pillar of your academic career, involving everything from the first and second trials to your AAS presidential address. Could you tell us how surgical education fits as a motivation for your next step as the chair of surgery? Yeah, thanks, Matt. It's always been a a career interest to train the next generation of surgeons and surgeon scientists for me. And I was particularly thrilled as I learned more about Indiana University. I'd always heard about their surgical education research program and their focus on surgical education, but I really learned a lot more about it through the interview process. And having been a med student there, I remember that, you know, education was job number one there. And I I really grew to admire the team's work. And that's why I was hopeful that they would come on and, and really share their work here today. Well, it's really exciting to be able to integrate your current institution and your future institution and to meet some other folks who have vested career interests in the future of our field. You'll absolutely be missed, and I'm certain that everyone here at Northwestern wishes you all the best. 
So let's go ahead and introduce some of the other guests that we have on for our episode today who are coming from your new home base. Sure. First, let me introduce Dr. Dimitri Stefanidis. He's a professor of surgery and he's the vice chair for education in the Department of Surgery. He's the chief of minimally invasive and bariatric surgery. And importantly, he's the current president of the Association for Surgical Education. He's had a career focus on surgical education and simulation and has an interest in coaching and curricular development. Welcome to the podcast, Dimitri. Thank you, Carl. It's great to be on the podcast. My colleagues and both you and Dr. Hu. And Matt, thank you so much for organizing all of this. Well, thank you for making the time to join us here today. Dr. Stefanidis, I think we're also fortunate to have some of your talented co-faculty and one of your trainees here with us. Can you introduce them for our listeners? Absolutely. So we have Dr. Jen Choi, who is the uh, director of our surgery program, soon to become the DIO in our institution, and he has contributed significantly to the education mission as well as the culture that we have in our program. We have Dr. Matt Ritter, who is um, a professor of surgery, and his specialty is MIS and hernia surgery. And we were really fortunate to be able to recruit him to our institution a couple of years ago when he got tired of the military, because he does have a lot of interest and experience in competence-based education. And it's been great to have him join us and strengthen our group in that regard. Finally, we also have Dr. Betsy Hoffman, who is one of our finishing PGY4 residents. And Betsy was actually our second educational research fellow. She's interested in endocrine surgery, Goal. And she'll talk to us also about one of the papers that we recently published. Welcome, everyone. Thanks again. Congratulations to Betsy on being first author for such an important paper. It's titled, A Competency-Based Laparoscopic Cholecystectomy Curriculum Significantly Improves General Surgery Residents' Operative Performance and Decreases Skill Variability. It's available ahead of print in the Annals of Surgery. We'll have the citation in the show notes for any interested in following along. In the spirit of other sort of clinically focused episodes that we do, I'm going to start us off with a case presentation of sorts. Let's imagine a general surgery resident at St. Elsewhere Hospital, of course not IU or Northwestern. They've had an exceptional year, becoming trustworthy and effective at all of the floor work, and have even worked their way into a handful of cases this year. They did reasonably well on the ab side, all of the chiefs and faculty compliment their ability on service, and everyone seems to think that this person is going to develop into a great surgeon. But let me put myself into this person's pristine, clean OR shoes for just a second and voice some hypothetical concerns. How does anyone know that I'm actually going to become a competent surgeon? Sure, I can field pages and replete electrolytes with the best of them, but this year I've driven some camera, i fired a couple of staplers, and I've closed some port sites. It's been almost a whole year in residency, and I don't feel any more a surgeon than when I started. Is becoming a good surgeon really just defined by logging a certain number of cases and surviving the next four years? Or is there more to surgical competency than just checking the boxes? Dr. Stephanidis, how would you respond to this hypothetical resident's experience of a crisis of identity in the midst of finishing first year? That's a great question. I think the resident appropriately asks for some more feedback on when they, where they are compared to where they should be. And I don't know that we're doing a really great job at providing that information to our trainees. But the reality is currently that the traditional paradigm is a number of limitations, right? By having to just collect the next number of cases or complete the five years without getting into much trouble is a fairly rudimentary way of ensuring that people will get 
the skills they need and achieve a level of performance they need. But it doesn't get as, as close as it should or as good as it can to that point, which is what really motivated us at IU to start working on changing some the traditional paradigm and implementing a lot more elements of a competence-based curriculum that I think we'll discuss in, in more detail in a moment. Dr. Choi, what has your experience been with what Dr. Stephanidis is saying in terms of understanding or defining what the graduating chief should look like and what sort of skills and competencies they should have after finishing five years of general surgery training? So I think that's a great question. And traditionally, I would say that programs have generally suggested that we know it when we see it and we know it when we see it's not present. Obviously, that's not a clear indicator either to the surgery resident or to the program and really minimizes the importance of various aspects of what it means to be a surgeon and overall whenever we're training them and helping them progress. So I think that we really will value the description of the competent trained surgeon, but I also don't think that that's exactly the same for individuals. Not all of us are the same. We don't all have the same skills. All our governing bodies in particular are also in the process of helping to define what are those baseline skills that we all need to have to go out to practice general surgery versus what additional skills do we have for more specialized surgery. The other piece of that is that we are quick to focus on technical skills whenever we think about the competently trained general surgeon. We also know that it means a lot of other things. We know that it means that we can be professional with our colleagues, that we can incorporate patient preferences into their treatment. And those are just a couple of things. So I really want to emphasize that our competently trained general surgeon means more than just being a technical surgeon. It's the easiest thing to focus on because it's the most accessible from a measurement perspective, but I don't think that it's a complete picture for sure. I totally agree. The things that came up in my head first in terms of measurement were things like the FLS or FES curricula, where discrete measurements of skill and quantifying technical aspects of training come into play. Dr. Huffman, how do you think when you compare your experience preparing for those different exams versus the skills you need to function as a graduating or soon-to-be chief resident in general surgery, it seems at least from the outsider's perspective that there's a little bit of a gap between the exam and the real-life experience? Yeah, that's a great question. I think a lot of that comes down to the fidelity of our simulators and of our models. And obviously, the, the higher fidelity a model is, I think the more comfortable that is from a resident standpoint to feel as if that skill is really translating from the skills lab to the operating room. But even things like FLS, where you're transferring pegs and it doesn't necessarily feel like a skill that, you know, you're not moving pegs around inside somebody's body, but you are learning the dexterity and the motions and really working on your hand-eye coordination and really translating that 2D image into what you're doing with your hands that really is valuable. And I think it's that progression through residency when you take these skills from the sim lab that you don't necessarily see the immediate results, but then you bring that to the operating room and you realize that your your hands are moving the way you want them to. Those That muscle memory is really coming into play that really starts to hammer home the point, to me at least as a resident, of the value of simulation. Yeah, that definitely makes a lot of sense. I think the sim lab, besides just being fun, can translate very well to practical operative skills, even if I'm no longer holding a laparoscope anymore. 
Dr. Ritter, in your career, you've been described as a recovering program director, and I imagine there have been a number of changes over the course of your career, especially with the adaptation of new technologies like robotic surgery or endovascular techniques. It seems like it's very difficult to try and encapsulate what a competent surgeon now is. And even still, that may not necessarily reflect what a competent surgeon is going to need to look like in 10, 15, or 20 years. How do you feel that the model of training has adapted from sort of the inception of surgery training to when it was when you trained and to where you are now, where you're training the next generation? Yeah, super important concept, obviously, and a topic I talk about with the residents frequently. I mean, in, in my current practice, which is focused mostly on abdominal wall reconstruction, you know, I, I do operations using a tool that neither existed when I was a trainee, right? I mean, you know, robotic hernia surgery has been a revolution over the past five to 10 years and, and things like component separation weren't really talked about. So I think, I think the key concept there is teaching people how to learn right? I mean, it, it's kind of the same concept that evolves from college. You learn how to take yourself through the learning process. And in surgery, that encompasses the, the full knowledge, skills, and attitudes and abilities. So uh, you have to learn about new processes, develop the skills to apply that, and, and have a good attitude to get along with others because surgery will always be a team sport. I think the summary of that is, you know, we need to learn as trainees how to do what's being done now, but more importantly, learn how to teach ourselves to stay current and adapt as we move forward. Well, that's a tall order to both train people to be surgeons, but also to train people to learn to become surgeons outside of the training environment. We'd like to take a minute to share a great opportunity to contribute to surgical education research and make a few bucks doing it. A team at the Brook Army Medical Center is working to better define proficiency-based metrics for competency in commonly performed general surgery procedures. If you are a PGY-4 or 5 general surgery resident or a practicing surgeon who performs robotic cholecystectomies or inguinal hernia repairs, take a minute to reach out to the study team for more information on how you could be compensated up to $400 for recording and submitting videos of you performing surgery. All you have to do is check out the show notes for the contact information dominate the day. I think that's a great segue into defining the central focus of today's episode, which is competency-based training. It's maybe not the panacea to all of the complex problems that we've talked about facing surgical education, but at least addresses some of the problem. Can we talk first about what the term is, competency-based education, and how does it differ from a more traditional time-served model of surgical training? To me, the core essence of competency-based training is the incorporation of robust and equitable measurement. What I mean by that is a reasonable and reliable way to ensure a trainee has met a standard, be that knowledge or patient care or any, any competency that we have defined through the ACGME. And, and having that be able to be measured in a fair and reproducible way so that we can prove that this level of performance has been achieved and we can move on to measuring other important things for the next level of advancement. This is what surgical educators have kind of done intuitively for years, but formalizing this in a way that can be applied in a transparent manner is the essence of modern competency-based education. 
And if I might add to what Dr. Ritter said, absolutely, I think a hallmark of competence-based education is frequent and robust assessment. And it's accompanied by having a, a plan for what to do when you identify issues and deficiencies. The one thing we've learned is the more you assess performance, the more issues you identify. But obviously, as educators, we also need to provide, okay, you have this issue, how are we going to make it better? Dr. Hoffman did mention about simulation, right? So simulation can be a great tool to accomplish some of this, but it's not the only tool. But clearly, I think competency-based education embodies both knowing where you want people to get to, so in other words, defining what you want them to look like, and assessing to see if they're getting there, and if not, having a structure that will help them get there. I just had some questions about how you operationalize it. Even in the time-served model that I trained in and that we're still using, right? We still have evaluation, but is it useful evaluation? Like one of the things I thought was the most challenging about understanding your performance and residency is you don't have a way to know if you're on track, right? Like they'll tell you if you are problematic, but are you the best person? Are you the second best person? Are you the middle? You know, like you have no idea because you don't ever operate with someone else like at your level. And so I'm curious what you guys think about current instruments and new instruments that are being developed. You know, I think this is one of the biggest challenges of competency-based education is assessment. And so Matt sort of alluded to it that we are still in the early phases of having a good workplace-based assessment, which I think is likely necessary to have multiple pieces of formative feedback that can ultimately demonstrate your progress over time. I do think that our attitude of comparing ourselves against others, and I, I will say I'm, I'm as guilty as anyone, is the wrong attitude from the perspective of competency-based education in that you have to be worried about your own personal growth and not what you're looking like in comparison to your peers. Like I said, I, I am a poster child for comparison, so I think it's a change in attitude that we have to actually ingrain in our learners from the beginning. That's different from what they've experienced in medical school. The match has been competitive. And then we want to put everyone on the same mentality of worrying only about themselves and their own personal progress and seeing where they are over the time frame that they are part of our training program. So, for example, in our program, we show every resident their milestones in a radial graph format. And back when we were doing milestones 1.0, I also used to include the class average. But I think that actually defeats the purpose of competency-based education. I, I want residents to see how they're doing compared to their performance in the last six months, not really compared to their peers. They always ask, how does the rest of my class look? And I said, doesn't matter. You need to start learning to worry about yourself. I would add to that too, in addition to growth, you know, measurement against a uh, you know, criterion reference standard rather than a norm reference standard. You know, you may have a fantastic class that everyone's uh, well above the required standard, and you may have a class that's less fantastic where the, the class average is below the standard you would like to see their performance. So I think a, a tightly defined performance standard that reflects the culture of the training program it is important uh, concept to competency-based education. So measured against your own improvement as well as a, a fairly defined performance standard. I would add that the way we develop expertise as learners, we have to understand what it looks like to be an expert right? So you need to have something, a goal that you work toward. 
is literature is very clear. If you don't have a goal, you'll never get to where you need to be. You'll improve, but you're not going to improve as much as you would if you do have a goal. And that's what really competence-based education does. It sets and defines that goal well and in, in a way that you can understand it. The literature also is very clear. We're really bad at self-assessment, especially if you're a guy like you're Dr. Chia. We tend to think we're better than the average. Women tend to think they're worse than the average. Maybe they have a, they're more conservative in how they assess themselves. But the literature is clear that that's happened. All the studies that have been done show the same thing again and again. But the most important thing is we need to know where we want to go and we need to know where you are currently. Because that's what's going to motivate you. We're all type A personalities. We're all very competitive beings. We would never have made it into surgery if we were not. So we have to feed off a little of that, in my opinion, to benefit the learner. I'm not saying to in a negative way, but I mean, if you, if you tell me, for example, right, that I'm behind my peers, oh my God, I'm going to change that. That will benefit me. I'll get better. And I bet you the vast majority of us in this field feel the same. I actually didn't mean that people should be competitive with one another. I was more thinking that the anchoring is useful because you have no anchoring when you're the trainee, right? Like you don't have a national benchmark to say I'm, I'm meeting or I'm not. And so you only have your co-residents to compare against. I think that the gender example is, is actually exactly what I was thinking about. We just did this podcast with Jake and Caprice Greenberg where they talked about how women underrate their skills and how that might translate into a woman being less aggressive about taking autonomy in the operating room. And so if we just let everyone to progress on their own track as they see it without them knowing, like, men are more aggressive and get more than you, you can end up with like a very different result at the end. So that is also my question about competency-based training is how you deal with that. Well, as a trainee, I honestly take a lot of comfort in competency-based education because I am trying to achieve a competency benchmark that is ideally set by a group of experts and that set intentionally and has solid foundation in their expertise of what they expect a trainee to do in order to be safe and competent. And if I'm achieving that, then I know that I can continue to meet those benchmarks as I'm progressing through my training. And it truly, like Dr. Troy was saying, it doesn't matter what my residents or co-residents around me are doing. I know that if I am making and meeting my benchmarks, that I am progressing well and that I will be the, the safe surgeon that everyone is wanting me to be, including myself. Well, I think that makes a lot of sense. And the concept of an objective, well-defined, competency-based curriculum makes a lot of intuitive sense. But at the same time, like Dr. Hu suggests, it's really hard to develop and operationalize in a program, especially one as broad of a specialty as general surgery. I mean, I think about how different the skill sets are, say, between transplant surgery and breast surgery, or MIS and endocrine. It just seems like such a tall order. But your group has already started tackling this issue of how to practically implement competency-based education. Can you tell us more about it? That's right. From... Our standpoint, you know, we we look and see the same challenges that, you know, everyone in the country is seeing that it, like you said, is a very tall order. But I think our response to it was start small, start with something that we're good at and, you know, the low hanging fruit, what's high volume and, and high volume for the general surgeon is obviously the lap coli. So we decided to look at how we could implement a competency based curriculum in our current time based paradigm. And obviously, it has some limitations just given the, the paradigm that we're living in right now. But we were able to take a month in which our PGY2 residents really dive into performing this one procedure and really involve as many of the competency-based elements as we could. 
Dr. Choi, this sounds like an immense project to tackle and to get off the ground. Can you tell us a little bit more about what it was like to develop this curriculum and work together with your faculty? Sure. So I will say that we started small, as Dr. Huffman suggested. We started with a common operation, but we also knew it was an operation with great impact. Many years after laparoscopic cholecystectomy has been utilized, we continue to have major complications. And so we wanted to look for a way in which we could teach residents in a very consistent fashion, reduce variability in performance, emphasize critical view of safety, and then measure their own personal competence over the course of time. The resident actually goes to the skills lab where they do some FLS tasks. They work on a virtual reality simulator. They do some work in SCORE related to laparoscopic cholecystectomy. And once they've become competent by various measurements in the skills lab, then we allow them to move on to the clinical world. Basically, they go from facility to facility, operating room to operating room, identifying laparoscopic cholecystectomies that are relatively low acuity type patients. So we do have some exclusions for a highly complex laparoscopic cholecystectomy that we limit our lap cooler residents from doing. We worked with our surgeons that are all performing these operations to try to do our best to standardize the operation, both with instrumentation, with identification of the critical view of safety, with order of the operation. And so I would suggest that that was, was a challenge. Obviously, our faculty have a way they like to do things, a way they like to teach things. But for the novice learner, we really wanted this consistent foundation for teaching. The resident can then do as many lap coles as possible. Many times they will get to do about 20 lap coles over about a three and a half week period. And we then were able to measure their outcomes at the end of that rotation comparing to those residents who had just participated in lab coles sort of incidentally over the course of their second year. Dr. Hoffman, you were not only part of the study author group, but you were part of the intervention itself. What was it like from the perspective of a general surgery resident being immersed in this cutting-edge curriculum? I had honestly a very unique perspective. I was part of the first class of residents that were the intervention group for the curriculum. And then I took some time off and went into the lab and then had the opportunity to study the data and ultimately, as you said, publish the data. So it's been a, a very rewarding process. But as a trainee and as a PGY2 resident going into the curriculum, I quite honestly, um, while I had done, you know, FLS tasks in the sim lab and everything else, I was still very uncomfortable with laparoscopic surgery and kind of the momentousness of a lab coli kind of scared me. You talk so much about the critical view of safety and, you know, you see complications of lab coli's gone bad, particularly at a center like ours where we have a lot of HPB expertise. And I didn't want to be that person that caused that bile duct injury. And so I think I went in with a lot of hesitation, but again, kind of put my faith in the process and went to the sim lab, met my simulated benchmarks, and then proceeded to perform these lab coles across our system and worked with some of our phenomenal surgeons. Everyone has a different style. And I think being able to see multiple different preferences, but ultimately, like we said, having a standardized approach and a standardized assessment at the end of it allowed me to really understand as a resident how to conceptualize the operation and ultimately even come up with some of preferences of my own, which was a nice thing that I hadn't developed yet as a PGY2 on a, on a major operation in my mind. And then having the opportunity to take that post-test and, and go back to the sim lab and 
really see how much my knowledge and technical skills had improved was something that gave me a lot of confidence. I went from, again, kind of being nervous of the operation to being able to do a lab coli skin to skin as a, you know, midway through the year PGY2. And that was a phenomenal experience. Dr. Troy, you alluded to some of this already, but it seems like there were a number of challenges. Standardizing the curriculum, standardizing instruments, standardizing the operation, speaking with all of the different educators, and then surmounting the logistical challenges to get your PGY-2s into this lap coli mill, so to speak. What were some of the pearls and lessons that you learned from doing this that other educators might benefit from who are looking to implement this kind of a competency-based curriculum? So my approach to a big project like this is really to try to dissuade my own personal dissent and the dissenters of others, try to remove sort of the all the reasons that we can't accomplish something in favor of looking forward to ways that we can accomplish something. I think that was a principle that was really important for this in particular, because we are in a very complex system. We have a lot of residents, and we really had to devote ourselves to making this happen and to encouraging others why this was really important to happen. So I think one of the main things is we were able to demonstrate the importance of competency-based education, the importance of repetitions within a short period of time, and also the importance of the individual educator in forming each individual's ability with laparoscopic cholecystectomy. So I I think part of it was a, a bit of a political process, right? We all have to decide how to spend our political capital, and this is where I spent mine. So I think whenever we're trying to do a big project like this, it is a change. And bringing surgeons on board as individuals. It's a lot of personal calls and just being well prepared to answer people's questions and to allay any concerns. The other place where we had concerns actually was really the senior residents. So for the first year of the curriculum, the junior residents, the PGY2s, might have been taking lap coles from more senior residents. They're going to someone else's service to do the operation on that service. And so we really had to encourage those residents, your, your case numbers are going to be fine. This is going to normalize within the first year. And if you can just stick with us, you're going to see an improvement in your junior residents. You're going to see that the positive impact that this curriculum has will positively impact you uh, as you progress to your senior years. And, And I really think that that happened. I think there was a lot of fear on the part of the junior residents calling a senior and saying, hey, I'm going to take your lap coley. But they were able to do it, and and we really were able to get people on board, and that has really led to the success, really, of this rotation. So even though the study period is officially over, we continue to do this rotation because we have seen value from our individual resident perception in, in the development of their laparoscopic skills. I love the point about getting the lead adopters on board. I <laughs> think it's so important for all research, basically. So I, can you say a little bit more about, like, what was the pushback? It just seems so amazing that anyone would be against competency-based education, right? Like, that's what we need. It's change, right? And I always say that surgeons hate change and Hoosiers hate change. So if you put Hoosier surgeons together, you might pick in trouble. So if someone's used to utilizing one type of instrument, but we're trying to standardize instruments, that's actually a big change. Everyone does lap coolies very similarly. Some people get a true critical view of safety. Some people get maybe a less perfect critical view of safety, but we really had to encourage people 
that it's worth the extra five minutes for the perfect critical view of safety for the sake of the learner. While it seems like that should be a natural inclination, I think for really experienced surgeons, that bit of a slowdown moment was was a challenge to convince folks that that was the right thing to do. How did you decide whose way got to be the way? My way or the highway? Top-down approach. (laughs) We actually formally surveyed people with their technique, and we kind of tried to utilize the most frequent technique. There were a few people using a harmonic scalpel, for example. We decided on the hook cautery was ideal. Since the study, I think people that are using the harmonic have continued to use, like they've kind of deviated a little bit, but not dramatically so. I think the other piece that was hard to convince people was the idea of the itinerant surgeon. So somebody that's coming in to do a case and then leave and not continue to care for the whole patient. They're not going to come to their clinic. So we have addressed that piece. The resident does come. They have to pre-op the patient. They have to get consent. That's part of the competency process. They did have to then attend a half a day of clinic a week at one of the clinics that does see cholecystectomy patients. So they might not see the patient they operate on, but we have addressed that with seeing post-operative patients. Wow, these are all really valuable insights, and I'm sure people will be reaching out to you all with the success of this. I I wanted to finish off by asking a couple of forward-looking questions. Dr. Ritter, what's next for competency-based education in general surgery at IU? I mean, Lap Coley, as you said at the beginning, was part of the foundational experience and toolset of general surgery. But what about other essential cases or more specialized aspects of general surgery training? Yeah, we've spent a, a good bit of time talking about the success of this procedural-based, the competency-based rotation and has been very successful. But I think it's pretty easy to see from even the discussion on implementation how you know scaling this to all the procedures encompassed in general surgery would would literally create logistical chaos for trying to manage a residency program and rotations where people are driving around to multiple different hospitals to do different operations. So I think as we looked forward uh, to scale it, we, we kind of uh, took a bit more of a holistic approach and and decided not to pursue the individual procedure-based model and really define the kind of knowledge, skills, and attitudes or abilities in, in different levels of residence. So kind of a foundational resident, intermediate-level resident, and advanced-level resident. And, and these terms were chosen to specifically begin the process of divorcing expectations from PGY levels but uh, more conceptually a progression through different levels of achievement, regardless of of PGY. So this process is ongoing right now. We're starting at the foundational resident for general surgery in our program, which does include uh, prelims for plastics and uh, vascular. So trying to create that core foundational resident. Well, this is a lot of exciting work, and I'm impressed by how you've adapted this and where this is heading in the next few years. Could you summarize a take-home that you gained from this experience, and what lessons would you give to future program directors and surgical educators looking to adapt competency-based education? For the flip side, how should current or prospective trainees be thinking about their training when they're looking at potential places to go to residency or fellowship? One point to highlight, Matt, is that the results of the implementation of curriculum we discussed showed that actually we were indeed able to homogenize the performance of the trainees. So we brought them up to a higher level 
and more consistent performance. Whereas before the implementation of this curriculum, the performance was a lot more variable. In my view, competence-based education is a one-way street. We have to be there. And the longer it takes us, the more valuable time we lose in, 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 in that journey. It's not easy. You heard a lot of challenges. But th the fact that it's hard to do doesn't mean we shouldn't be doing it, which is, I think, what the paradigm we've been following. Because I think many people have known this it's a good thing to do, but because it's hard to do, not many people have tackled this. Surgeons love hard things. That's like who we are. <laughs> we should be digging in. As surgeons, we generally don't necessarily do what's easy. We do what's right. And I think it is right to, to do this. From the trainee standpoint, I would just add, you know, we talked about assessment being key in competency-based education. And, and don't be afraid of assessment. It really helps you figure out where you are and ultimately helps you realize where you're on in your path to becoming the best surgeon you can be. And I think particularly for medical students thinking about surgery, look for somewhere that prioritizes education and prioritizes assessment and, and making sure that you're going to be safe and competent because this is this is definitely the future of education and where we're headed and i think everybody knows that this is the right way to go and so tying it to research and doing it in a rigorous way at one of the largest residency programs in the country allows you to do some experimentation and lead the way and show some examples of what works and what doesn't work very honestly and so you know i commend the work you all have done over the last several years and, and i look forward to uh, joining the effort I think competency-based education is is a challenge. Otherwise, it would have been done long ago. And so we are seeing really good examples around the country of ways that we are learning to implement competency-based education. Feasibility is the biggest challenge to do it right across the board. And so I think where we can put our resources together to identify ways to implement in small pockets even is really a move in the right direction. Yeah, all I'll add to that is I think as as more and more folks think about doing this, there's going to be a push to develop national standards. And I, and I certainly think there's a role for that. But I, I, I want to emphasize the importance, I think, of, of some site and program specificity to this. And, and that's based on the needs of the communities that different hospitals and different hospital systems serve. And, and the structure around each training program that may require different skills at different times in a residence experience. So, so while I do think there's some, there's some room for national standard setting, I, I think we have to be mindful of the, the site specificity of these competencies and embrace that rather than try to eliminate it because I think different residency programs, you know, serve different communities and, and may have slightly different goals and, and that's okay. And, and we will produce good, competent trainees that can serve our populations, both individually and collectively. Well, I want to thank you all for your pioneering work in the surgical education space. I think it's no exaggeration to say that it touches on every aspect of surgery and will have a long-lasting effect on patient care. You can find our guests on Twitter at Betsy Huffman MD, at Jen Choi underscore IU, at Emat Ritter, and at DStephanidis1. Carl can be found at KBillamoria, Yaron at Yaronhu, and myself at Chia underscore MD. Be sure to follow at Behind the Knife for all of your surgical podcast needs. Thanks to you all for listening, and we'll see you in the next one. Take care now. Be sure to check out our website at www.behindthenife.org for more great content. You can also follow us on Twitter at Behind the Knife and Instagram at Behind the Knife Podcast. If you like what you hear, please take a minute to leave us a review. 
Content produced by Behind the Knife is intended for health professionals and is for educational purposes only. We do not diagnose, treat, or offer patient-specific advice. Thank you for listening. Until next time, dominate the day.